the only real goal that I really have, like I don't really make set goals too much, a little bit here and there, but the only real goal I have is giving. Like how much can I give this year? Like how much can you help others? Hey investor, welcome back to another episode of the Passive Income Adventures where I am excited that we have Yona Weiss in with us today. Yona has had a huge impact on my business. We tell a story as we're talking about a great tax refund that I got that I was able to use to buy a rental home. And that was directly from one of the cost segregation studies. And so it's a very powerful strategy. And the money that we paid him to do that study obviously saved us so much more in taxes and it allowed us to take those savings and reinvest it back into our property as well as on our personal taxes where we were able to reinvest that into a rental property. And so these strategies that he's going to be sharing with us today are very powerful. And I like how we also get a little bit onto the personal side about why he does what he does, where he started, and really the crisis that was a turning point in his life, and how he is facing his next turning point without that same kind of crisis kind of pushing him into a corner. I think that's what we all have to answer on our passive income adventure is Where are we going after we achieve some amount of success, more time freedom, more ability to choose who we spend our time with and where? And sometimes we're losing a little bit of that pressure and that stress that really does motivate us to do some amazing things. And so we get into a little bit of that with Yona about how he balances that now. And because it's similar to what I'm going through as well, but I feel like I keep taking on new projects that allow me to keep filling a new stress. And so I think that that's a really important part of building your adventure. Sometimes just the act of going on an adventure is a stressful thing in and of itself. And so just having the ability to think about that as you're working on your goals is something that we're really able to get into with Yona here, as well as some of the more controversial side of the tax debate. I loved how he handled it very graciously. And we're able to talk about who's paying taxes, who's not paying taxes, and really the virtue of paying taxes. So you're going to definitely want to get in on this one. If you are a high income earner, accredited investor, this is a type of tax discussion that suddenly becomes interesting. It might have been boring at one point, but when you're looking at paying a huge tax bill and you know that there are legal ways that you can pay less in taxes, keep and invest more of your own money, suddenly these kinds of discussions become a lot more fascinating. So jump Jump in, learn how to save money on your taxes and learn about just basic human dignity and running a great value-driven business from Yona Weiss. So we got Yona Weiss here, Yona, my buddy from LinkedIn, Yona, the LinkedIn King. Many of you know him from there. And today Yona is going to just jump into telling us all about how he got to be the LinkedIn King and your backstory, if you will. Yeah, I don't know. I don't really reference myself as the LinkedIn King, you know, people know me the Cossack King. But listen, like a king can wear many crowns. That's the truth. It's true. Right? But my backstory is um, pretty non I, I would say. I grew up in Southern California, and pretty average kind of middle class life. Didn't really have much. You know, my parents worked, and I didn't, you know, I was kind of a bad student. You know, wasn't really into school so much, into sports and, you know, hanging out like a lot of kids do. But, you know, in college, I really got, I became much more, you know, very looking into my heritage and finding more about that. And I actually took my junior year study abroad in Israel mm-hmm. and in Jerusalem. And, and that really was like a life-changing event for me, a year really long and kind of changed the total trajectory of like everything in my life. I ended up staying, you know, for a while and, you know, went back, finished the last year of college in San Diego and then came back to, to Israel. And met my wife here and, and started a family and still currently living in Israel. So it's a long 
kind of been a long trek, but it was, I spent about 15 years from that point. I, I spent most of my time as a teacher and I had a nonprofit organization that I started as well. And I was never really into business or finance or money for that matter. I lived extremely frugally, love to just live life, you know, kind of pay the bills and not worry, not have any cares, just kind of enjoy the family. I have six kids. So similar to you, Emma, I have, you know, a big family and loved, uh, loved just living life. But at a certain point, it was, you know, we had a kind of scare, a health crisis in my immediate family. And without getting into too much details, this was about eight years ago. It really kind of shook me up and not only shook me up financially because, you know, besides for some student debt that I still had and things like that, we ended up having, you know, having to pay ridiculous medical bills that were not covered by insurance or anything like that. And it was, I was like underwater, like I'd never been before in my life and realized that, okay, my teaching salary is not going to help me pay these bills, you know, let alone get out of them, let alone, you know, pay rent next month. And I was like really in, in a struggle. And I took some time off just to think, not that I had much time, but I had actually really good. And this is a great story, by the way, I had a really a good friend who was successful, he's in mutual funds and a very successful uh, person in general in life. And I sat down with him. I told him my problem, my struggle. I said, listen, I don't know what to do. And he knew I was struggling. So he like invited me to his house to speak. And I told him, I, I don't know what to do. And he's like, listen, I'm going to give you a loan, you know, for whatever you need to cover three months of expenses for, you know, it's going to be interest-free loan and pay it back to me whenever you can. It was like that. Like he, it was nothing to him. You know, it was like a drop in the bucket of him, but it was very generous. And he said, on three conditions, I'm giving this to you, right? Number one, you can't tell anyone that I did this, right? Meaning, so he's still anonymous to this day. I've never told anyone who he is. Like, you know, I know whatever. And he said, the second thing is that sometime in life, later in life, you're going to have someone that you see, that you know is struggling. And I want you to, you know, do the same thing, kind of help them out. And, and I don't remember what the third condition was, but oh, the third condition was, you know, pay it back whenever, you know, whenever you can, right? There was no like kind of time limits. So that was, that to me was, I was really struggling. And, but that gave me, you know, I was extremely blessed and thank God that I had someone like an angel like that in my life to do that. But that really gave me the clear, the, kind of the headspace to, um, okay, now I need to find something else to do, like get another job or, or another industry, whatever. And I just used that time to reach out to my network, the people that I knew, my friends, acquaintances. What ideas do you guys, you know, and real estate kept coming up in conversation with people and they ended up running into a good friend of mine parking lot one day. And he was like, I was like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I just left. He was working for a mortgage broker for a long time as a mortgage broker. And he just left to go off on his own. And he also owned a bunch of rental properties and kind of managed them remotely, et cetera. He was very successful. And I was like, He's like, hey, why don't you come work with me? I'm like, okay, I don't know the first thing about mortgages about anything. And I literally remember we sat down one day and he like was telling me about, you know, LTVs and, you know, cap rates and all these things. And it was all new information because I had no experience with this whatsoever. So that was kind of my foray into the real estate world. And from there, it just kind of kept growing and, and growing. So, you know, my past was obviously really kind of interesting. I didn't really cover too much detail into growing up and things like that. But that was really a life-changing kind of event. And I think a lot of us have these things in our lives happen to us. And oftentimes they're crises and oftentimes they're struggles. And 
we may be faced in total under total pressure and not even know what to what to do, like where to turn and think, you know, why is this happening to me? Or what's the benefit? But in retrospect, all it's always for the good. It's always, you know, things good happening. You have to pull the good out. You have to find, okay, how is this going to, you know, how where can I go from here? And and that's really why we have struggles, I believe. So that's an interesting concept because I think we talk a lot about, even on the show, especially on the show, like the rock bottom moment or that pivot moment that people had in their lives that turned them into the path that they're in today, like the path onto the passive income adventure. It's all mm-hmm. about getting more control over your life, over your lifestyle, over your time, over the people that you're with, over the activities that you're doing. And I feel like sometimes we want to get to that point because we feel like there's going to be less struggle. But the yeah. struggle is what got us onto that path and is what leading us to success anyway. And so how do you find that you're able to keep that struggle and that pressure that is healthy, but still kind of keeping the dream alive of having more control over your time and, and all of those kinds of things, like taking the pressure off? Well, I don't think we, we should be asking for pressure or, or crises or struggles per se, but they do happen. And so I think it's more about having the right character and having the right you know, ways to pivot and basically learning what to do in those situations, but not necessarily like searching them out. Like I'm not looking for extra pressure. I'm not looking for, you know, for anything like that happening. But I think going through them, you learn, you know, how to you build tougher skin, you become more resilient and you learn kind of patterns of, okay, when that happens next time, okay, what am I going to do differently? How am I going to change? How I'm not, you know, going to react differently. And I think that's really the main thing. So it's not, I mean, I would be happy if I didn't have any pressure, right? But I know that the pressures grow. So I'm, again, I'm not seeking it out. I know it's going to come in different forms. And, you know, it will come, you know, when you have kids, it comes in the form of your kids most of the time, <laughs> in some way or another. They, and they don't grow out of it. I think one thing that I've noticed recently is that as my young adult children are looking back on their childhood and basically telling me what a terrible job I did. <laughs> I'm like, wait a second. I thought this was the part where I get to sit back and say, look at what productive young people you are and feel some success. But it's uh, it's always a challenge. It's always a challenge. And I, But I find that I never invite challenge because I feel like, oh, I don't have enough challenge in my life right now because, uh, you know, everything you can, everything fills up the space. So if you right. have space, it's going to get filled up. But sometimes I notice when I say yes to things, mm-hmm. I know that I'm inviting challenge. I yes. know that this is not going to be easy, yet I'm saying yes to it anyway. And it's never because I think I need a challenge. It always has some other reason. But then when you look back on it, what you remember is like, I grew through this challenge. You're not really looking at the original reason why. Sometimes it's just like, wow, that was a very powerful experience for us. And it wasn't, you kind of forget the original reason you did it. So just like what you did, I don't know, maybe what was it a year or so ago when you made a small pivot into getting involved in multifamily deals. So you're doing cost segregation. You are having success with that. You're a cost seg king. And suddenly you're like, you know what? I actually want to go take on the the risk and the work of being a general partner on a deal. So can you tell us a little bit about that shift? I know you're still obviously the cost seg, but just kind of dabbling or moving that direction. Tell us the decision process behind that. Yeah, it's funny you ask because just based on what we're talking about, right? Inviting the pressure and like saying yes to things. So that was, to be honest, I, for a long time, for many years, probably like three, four years, I've been kind of toying with this idea. I've invested passively, you know, quite a bit, but as an LP, you know, limited partner in a lot of these deals, 
but never was a general partner and was interested in doing that for a long time. And people kept telling me, oh, you'd be great at it because you're so good at social media and you're so good, you know, with people and networking and you'd be great at capital raising. I was like, okay, yes, yes, but do I want to do that? Like, do I want to invite that extra time, right? I have a full-time job, right? I have, I'm not looking to leave. I really enjoy what I do. I have a great system set up. We have a great company. I have, you know, people working for me. So I don't have to deal with a lot of the day-to-day kind of intricacies. Yeah, you know, I can go on podcasts, you know, every day and do fun stuff like this, which is what I really enjoy doing. But I was like, okay, now I have some extra free time, maybe do this. And without getting into, you know, I don't know if we're in the, the present or future yet, but we're, you know, talking about the the future. I was thinking about, okay, where, you know, I don't want to work forever, right? And I'm, you know, slowly building some wealth through the passive investing, but I know that a much faster way to get there is through being actively involved, having more equity, etc. And that's really what drove me to do it. That being said, I've taken a step back from that and I've said, okay, may put a little pause on it. I was invited to be uh, you know, a GP in one deal and that was great, really good learning experience. But I realized that it took way too much time from what I was doing and that's not what I want. I was on a, a call yesterday with someone just talking about marketing and I really don't want extra work. Like I don't want to create another job for myself. I'm very comfortable with what I'm doing now. I love what I do and have a lot of free time to spend with my kids at this point. So I don't really want to invite another job onto myself. Yeah. I, I felt the same thing when I, we do have a fund. We have a you know private fund that we started, but it took me probably three years before I thought I should start a fund, like seriously, it was always something I knew it was a thing uh, very early on in my real estate investing career, but people are like, you should start a fund, you know, no, I don't want to, but probably something in 2020 happened where I just felt like I I really am being overwhelmed by the amount of asset management I'm doing as a general partner. And we were looking at bringing on two more deals. And I think it was like a $7 million raise between the two of them. And then while I was at this conference learning about funds, we got another deal under contract with one of the people who was at the conference. And I just was, I'm being eaten alive by asset management meetings. It's constant and the details. And I don't like this. I'm not really cut out for it. And then I want to go and put a fund on top of that and give myself another job. And so the reason it took me three years was because I was trying to divest myself out of projects. So get it stabilized, turnover managing partners, someone else, sell it, these types of things. And once I felt like I had enough off my plate, that was when I said, okay, I know People who invest with me in my club, we've done a couple deals together. I would love to start a fund with them. And then it took me another six months to kind of talk them into it. So getting yourself another job or getting into another rat race, at a certain point, you just have to stop and ask yourself, what's my purpose here? People tell me all the time, oh, I want to get into commercial real estate. I do a little single family because I want more passive income to spend more time with my family. I'm like, that's not how you do it. Right. I did it probably for the same reason you did it, because when you're working, you're making money out of thin air. Whereas when you're a passive partner, you're making money out of money that you already made. And so I needed to make more money to invest so that my passive income could exceed our expenses. And we didn't have enough in the pile. So I felt like, well, I'll go out and hustle for a few years, get the pile larger, and then I'll switch over to passive. But what I realized is like, why are people investing with me when I got one foot out the door and I don't even like asset management? That's not keeping your eye on the ball. And so I feel like a fund is a much better fit for me. But it was a, a process so that I wasn't taking on too much and really losing the point and the purpose of why I even started this in the first place. So 
Sounds like you went through a similar process with why am I doing this? It's really time consuming. Absolutely. And you want to try to figure out what you do best and what you enjoy doing and do more of that and figure out, you know, everything else you can have other people do. And so that's part of the process as well. Like I tried out the kind of, you know, the asset management thing. I was like, I'm not really good at it. I really don't enjoy it. Why would I spend my time doing something that I don't enjoy? Is it worth it for the money? No, for me, it wasn't like my time. Yes, it would be great money, but that's not what's important to me. That's my values are not money, right? My values are my life and my time and enjoying the time that I'm spending working. So those are really important things to me. And it does take time and effort to do. You you do have to kind of invite more projects on and try out different things to figure that out because it's not going to come automatically. Yeah. So, th- so that was that was a learning experience for me. Uh, I'm still interested in the GP side. I'm still interested in doing that, but in a much more kind of indirect way, if I can be mm-hmm. more of an advisory, more of, uh, you know, the capital raising is one thing, setting up automations and things like that, doing webinars. And, and that's the, I enjoy, right? I could do that. But, you know, anything else beyond that, it's just out of my pay grade and, and something I wouldn't spend more time doing. I think uh, one thing I've noticed, one thing I've learned about being a little bit more of a step back role, like what we do in our club or like when you're signing on a loan or something, you really need to become an expert at putting a deal together mm-hmm. and then an expert at saving a deal that's not going well. Because that's, I think, where a lot of people get into trouble. Like we want to be more hands off. So we'll sign on a loan or we will raise capital, right? But then when the deal's in trouble, do we know how to save it? Do we know how to fix it? Can we step in? Can we take over? Can we bring in another group? Can we raise more capital? And so deal saving and deal creation to me are the two most important skills of anybody who wants to be less hands-on in the day-to-day. So I'm learning a new set of skills right now with deal rescue um, and finding people who come in to rescue deals that are in trouble. Because I feel like some of the people who are on some of the deals, like who signed on the loan or taken on a a more hands-off role, if a deal's in trouble, they're not stepping in. I don't know if it's because they don't want to or they don't know how, but just being willing. And then you kind of have to think to yourself, like if every deal that I'm signed on or every deal that I'm a minor got in trouble, would I be able to save them? And asking yourself that question. So not getting it over your head Mm -hmm. when you have to get more involved sometimes in asset management. So that's another question I've been asking myself a lot lately. I don't know. That's interesting. I never really really thought about that. I mean, but (laughs) it makes sense. Like instead of just letting you know, the, the tide can take its course, actually jumping in and trying to get involved, even if you are just a limited partner, that could be interesting. Yeah. I always tell limited partners to have a capital call emergency fund because maybe you don't need a capital call emergency fund for every deal that you're in, but like a re- like we say, three to six months of expenses on a rental house, mm-hmm. something like maybe half your deals might have capital calls. And so don't invest every dime because if there's a capital call and you want to actually participate, you think the deal is worth saving. So there are just certain things that have to happen. And I'll never regret my asset management experience because that's what comes in handy down the road if I do need to get more involved. And it's just, I have to be very careful with what I get involved in because you always have to ask like, right? you know, can I step in? Am I willing to? Do I have time? I think that you've been very wise in asking yourself those questions and seeing what you want out of your life and what you're doing. So tell us what you're up Comes to. with the name. Yeah. <laughs> tell us what you're, yeah. <laughs> the wise advice. Hi, wise advice podcast. Anyway, catch us up to a little bit of what you're doing today. I, I know 
like when we talked a while back, you were seeing if you want to do some other things, but it sounds like you're really hitting your stride uh, in your niche. So can you talk to us a little bit more about that? And I really, really, really want you to tell us more about what you do and how you save people money on taxes. Because I was talking to a potential investor just yesterday and his biggest interest, he said, I hear that I can save money on taxes by real estate. He says, Mm -hmm. but I don't really know how that works because he's not a real estate professional. He and his wife are both working full-time high income earners Mm -hmm. and they can't take advantage of unlimited depreciation, things like that. He says, so tell me why from tax purposes to shield our W-2 income, we should be investing in real estate. And I was like, oh, you should probably ask your cost set guy. Actually, they seem to know more about it than even my accountant. So I would love to dive into more of the different strategies that people in different types of careers, real estate professional, W-2s, these type of people from all walks of life, how we can use cost segregation or real estate to save money on our taxes. Yeah. So spoiler alert, the W-2s have much less ability to (laughs) do that. We will talk about a couple of strategies, but yeah, happy to do that. I mean, cost segregation is one of those strategies that many people, most people have no idea what it is. I mean, even accountants, literally. I Yesterday I had, and I just posted about this. Yesterday I had a guy, accountant, a CPA, who's been in accounting for 40 years. I mean, this guy was, you know, been doing it for a long time, right? Before I was born, <laughs> he's been doing accounting. And he, this is the first time he ever saw a cost segregation report, like we did for one of his clients. And he was like, He's like, this is amazing. Like, I, I, you guys are so detailed. I want to do this more or whatever. <laughs> yeah. But it just goes to show you, like, even accountants don't know about this. So love to talk about cost segregation because it is such a powerful tax strategy and how this applies to W-2 versus real estate professional, what that means, and a couple uh, exceptions to those rules. So I just, like, jump right in, like, depreciation, cost segregation. Yeah. Far, I had an accountant uh, tell one of our investors once that it was illegal. He said, yeah. what, he got the report and he's like, this isn't a thing. I'm like, it's from 2017 and my accountant didn't know what it was either because they've been practicing a really long time and they just haven't kept up. And yeah, I would love for you to start with, explain what depreciation is in the first place, when cost segregation would be a good fit versus a bad fit, because maybe they're already maxed out on their losses. Just walk us through that process and how to make the decision if this is going to be something beneficial. So depreciation and cost segregation is really just an advanced form of depreciation. So we'll take a step back and depreciation is not what it sounds like. So it sounds like a negative thing, right? Something's going down in value, property's going down in value. But really what it means is just a borrowed term. It's the name of a tax deduction that anytime you buy a property, besides for your primary residence, any rental or business property, you're able to take this deduction called depreciation. What that is, it says, Based on your purchase price, right, we subtract a small amount for land, which does not depreciate. The building, the improvements, everything in there, you're able to literally write that off from your income tax. And so it's a crazy thing because it's totally subjective to you as the owner. It's not intrinsic to the property. So it's not talking about the property is actually depreciating, going down in value. It's just giving you a tax deduction as if it were going down in value. Again, I remember the first time I even heard this concept, I was like, I was blown away. I was like, what? Why would the government give you a deduction like when your property is actually going up in value as if it's going down in value? So it didn't make sense to me at the time. Still doesn't to this day. But what that is, essentially, it's over a long period of time, though. It's over a 27 and a half year period for residential or multifamily properties and over a 39 year period for commercial properties, which means you're basically taking about a 2 to 3% deduction of your purchase price every single year. And so it's helpful, but it's not really like a huge deal. Where cost segregation comes in is 
the IRS act, and it's funny that accountants like never heard of this or think it's like a scam or think it's illegal when it's in the tax code. So the IRS actually has different lifespans for different components in a property and saying certain things actually depreciate on a five-year schedule or over a 15-year schedule, which means that you can identify what those components are and then take the tax deduction of those components over those faster rates, over those faster lifespans. And again, it's not intrinsic to the actual property. So anytime the property changes hands, that depreciation schedule starts over, right? The new 27 and a half years, new five year, which is crazy. And so you're allowed to accelerate the depreciation of certain assets, certain components, and then take a bigger tax. So think about it as like a cash flow mechanism, because essentially what we're doing is just increasing deductions in the earlier years to pay less income tax, which allows you to have more cash flow to reinvest. Now that's really the main benefit of cost segregation is obviously reducing your paying less taxes is huge, but using that money, right? It's, it's one thing to keep more money that you're making, but it's an even greater thing to reinvest that and actually make more money with that. And so the compound interest of doing that is actually exponential. Yeah, we had a, a similar experience where we had so much depreciation one year that we actually ended up with a massive tax refund and we couldn't take any more exemptions. My husband was W-2 at the time. I was a real estate professional. And I felt I, I want to zero it out. I don't want to be giving the government a free loan where they're keeping my refund around. And I also don't want the government to be giving me a free loan <laughs> where I have to pay taxes on it later. And But this year we had this massive tax refund because we just had so much depreciation. And because I could take an unlimited loss because of my real estate professional, uh, we got a, such a big tax refund that we use that to go buy a new rental house. Like we use it as a down payment on a new rental house. And then we just rented it out. And so at that point, this is a free house <laughs> based on tax savings. But then I had a, a buddy of mine, local, and he owned a couple of rental houses. And he's heard about this, I think, at our local RIA club. And he said, oh, I'm going to go get a cost segregation study. And he gave it to his accountant. And he said, your W-2 already are maxed out on your and it was a waste of time and money for you to get a cost sex study because his, right. what is it, 12.5 or something like that. Can you tell us more about that and some, maybe some different strategies that people who are maxed out on those losses can use? Absolutely. So the reason why that is about the W-2 is because real estate income is treated differently than W-2 income. Real estate income, the IRS says is passive income. Everyone knows it's not really passive, right? There's very yeah. little, even though it's called passive income, right? Ventures work. The real adventure is realizing that rental <laughs> real estate is not passive whatsoever. It's kind of in the middle. <laughs> you don't have to go every day, but it's like having a baby that needs your attention all the time, every single day, every minute of every day versus a teenager who you might go a couple of days where they just come in and out of the door and say, hi, mom. And so I feel like rental properties are kind of more in that teenage phase and passive income is more like your kids are adults and, and you wish they would call you every once in a while. <laughs> I hear that. I can relate. The so since W-2 income is treated differently and rental income is considered passive income, depreciation, which with a cost irrigation, and we didn't talk about bonus depreciation, but essentially that's just giving you a huge lump sum of those depreciation deductions in the first year, mm -hmm. is that's going to create more depreciation deductions. It's only going to be limited to offset your passive or your rental income. Okay. And so that's where the real estate professional status comes in because someone who is considered a real estate professional by the IRS's rules, which means you're full-time, you don't have a W-2 job, either you or your spouse is uh, full-time in real estate. Uh, you're spending a minimum of 750 hours a year. So you can't just like retire and do nothing. You have to actually be doing something. Once you have that, you can then have those losses 
from depreciation offset any other source of income, your active income as well. So that's the major limitation is that if you're W-2, the losses from depreciation can only be offsetting your rental income. I mean, there are a few, three, I would say three, you know, three notable exceptions to that. One is obviously the real estate professional status, which unleashes those, those lo- unleashes those losses. The second one is if you make under $100,000 a year of adjusted gross income, then you can take up to $25,000 of those losses against your W-2. So there is, you know, there is that dispensation. So that's something beneficial. Obviously, if you're making more than that, you're making over 150, you can't take any. So it's phased out between 100 and 150 without getting too technical here. And then the third one, which is actually something that I've seen become in the past couple of years, extremely popular among people who are W-2 is short-term rentals. Um, because yeah. there's a special rule with regard to short-term rentals, if the average stays less than seven days, so think about like an Airbnb property and you're self-managing it, and that's the most important thing here, you have to be self-managing and you're materially participating, you do not need to be a real estate professional. You need to spend a minimum of 100 hours a year, all right, and more time than anyone else, you're self-managing it. And then you also are able to use the losses, the deductions from cost segregation, from depreciation against your W-2 income. So again, that's probably the biggest thing. Otherwise, the losses, right, these depreciation deductions are limited and you can only use them against your passive income. So it's great because real estate in of itself is a great investment because, listen, at least you're not paying taxes on the rental income or the real estate income that's coming in, if there is any, right? And on top of that, you are, you know, creating this huge imaginary bank account of losses that will carry forward you could use in future years. And when the property sells, you can actually use that to offset your gain or the gain from the sale of another property. So it is beneficial in multifaceted. Unfortunately, there's not much beyond that. I feel like the point that my family is getting to where we're trying to get most of our income from rental income, passive income. And then the only active income we have is when we're doing like say management fees from our fund or we're making interest income from a debt investment that we made, like where we are the lender and we're making that interest income. We don't get any tax breaks for that or some consulting or coaching, things like that. So we're trying to limit the amount of active income we're getting so that we don't care as much about the the tax savings. So when you're to the point where most of your income is passive, how does this type of depreciation affect it? It would just be offsetting like our interest income so we can take on more loans or how would that work? I mean, essentially at that point, you're just having losses and not having any income tax liability. I mean, mm-hmm. so it's not going to benefit you too much beyond that. But I mean, that, that in of itself is pretty, pretty good, right? I mean, you're just, you're making money and not paying taxes on any of it and you just keep reinvesting and growing that. And that's really one of the tricks and one of the things that real estate kind of giants and have done. And we know, you know, people just doing that, paying tax. I remember years ago, like 2018 or something that someone, the New York Times like had this article like Jared Kushner, right? It has $300 million net worth and, and hasn't paid income tax, right? The past like five years, right? Yeah. And so it was written as kind of, he must be doing tax evasion and stuff like that. I mean, that was the intention of the, the article, but really he's just, you know, owns a lot of real estate and does cost segregation, you know, because we do all the Kushner right costings, right? So yeah, it, you know, it's, you know that they're using, you know, 1031s, they're using all these tax strategies and they're doing it the right way. Yeah. There's a difference between tax avoidance and tax evasion. Tax avoidance is using what's there and saying, well, how are people who are not paying taxes doing it? Because I want more money to invest because like you said, when your friend 
loaned you that money? What was one of the stipulations that he made that you need to pay it forward? And so Mm -hmm. I think that the the problem here is not so much that uh, people are being greedy and they want to make so much money. It's more about at a certain point, everybody says, well, what more do I need? What more do I want? And they want to give more. And and I think there are a few, there are a few exceptions to that. But for the most part, people want to make more so that they can give more because at a certain point, you're like, how many times can you travel the world? You know, how many cars and airplanes can you really have unless there's some sort of underlying issue, which I, you know, I've met a few, but for the most part, people just want to make more so that they can give more. And so I'm looking around, like, how can I save money on taxes? Because then I can have more control over exactly you. I mean, your, your friend left that up to you. He didn't tell you, well, Mm -hmm. so-and-so down the street's having a hard time. So when you recover, go help him. Right. Or I'm going to help him in your behalf. It was, you got to make that decision. And you got to choose. And I think that's what most of us are after is giving more where we want to give it. I mean, I hope so. I I certainly feel the same way. I don't think everyone feels that way, (laughs) at least from my experience. They should. And you're absolutely right. I mean, the more that you make, the more you can give. I mean, that's you talk about goals. People talk about goals. The only real goal that I really have, like I don't really make set goals too much, a little bit here and there, but the only real goal I have is giving. Like how much can I give this year? Like how much can you help others and try to increase that, you know, as much as I can year after year. So yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Yeah. And somebody introduced me to recently to the concept of giving money, but also freeing up your time, having more time control to give more time as well. Mm -hmm. And that was a powerful thing for me because we always talk about, most people talk about time freedom. Honestly, they don't talk about financial freedom. They don't say those kinds of things. They say, I I want more time freedom because they don't want to have to work. They want to spend more time with their family, but then they have all this extra time that they're using to basically bless their community. And my wealthiest investors, when I ask them, like, what's the most important thing to you now? They kind of have this passive income thing under control. They're like, I want projects that give back. I want to do affordable housing. I want to do community impact projects. They want to do more social investing. And so I'm looking up to them as wealthier than I am. And they're teaching me these lessons of how to break free and then how to give back. And so I think that when you're looking at saving taxes, I heard a story recently on NPR and you said the same thing about Jared Kushner, where NPR is like these pro sports owners, they're making so much money and they're getting all these business deductions, but they're making millions of dollars a year, but they're not paying any taxes. And they're basically taking a loan from the government because they're they were even talking about carrying forward losses and right. not recapturing them because they can just keep kicking it down the road until they die. And it was this very negative story coverage and very negative tone. And in my car, I'm sitting there like, all right, what are they doing? How do I get in <laughs> on some of that? Because if there is a legal way to do this, right. then I just, I don't understand the, the tone of people who are using legal means to avoid paying taxes. It's like we're taking the, the food out of the mouths of babies or something like that. So I've really struggled with kind of that tone. Like, I'm sure you see a lot of it <laughs> in what you do. Like you said, you do the Kushner cost like how do you think about that like how do you frame that you know it's i first of all just kind of preface with this like i try to stay out of anything that's <laughs> argumentative or, or politically like driven whatsoever like i avoid it like the play so i'm not gonna go down that road whatsoever even though you you left it open and, and someone else <laughs> may have taken it right and not me <laughs> but i will say that you know, I learned this early on from Tom Wheelwright in the in his book, Tax-Free Wealth, which is a great book if you haven't checked it out from the Rich mm-hmm. Down Advisors, that the tax code is an incentive plan, essentially. And so they're showing different deductions for different incentives. They want people to do certain, the government wants people to do certain actions or activities in order, 
And so they're going to give deductions to incentivize people to do that. So they need the oil and gas production, whatever. So they want to incentivize people to be in that business. So they give, you know, huge tax breaks for that. Real estate as well. You know, people need housing. That's, they want people to be involved with that. They don't want government housing. They don't want to be involved as much. So they want people to, you know, private investors and private people to do that. So they give these, you know, depreciation deductions and things like that. So following the tax code, using it to your advantage and figuring out, and obviously that would require having a tax advisor, someone who can direct you and, you know, open up some doors and ways for you to invest or ways for you to do different activities that would help you increase tax savings and tax deferrals, tax avoidance, as you mentioned. I mean, that's really the best way. So there are clearly people in the world that are against against that. And I, I can't figure <laughs> out why for the life of me. But, you know, for the same reason that, you know, those people were never taught financial education for the same reason why, you know, those people probably have like huge credit card, you know, and student loan debt and all kinds of things like that, because that's what they're kind of taught, you know, just go to school, get a job, take on huge debt and et cetera. And they're not really taught the financial education that we really need to teach our, our children mm -hmm. and, and teach the next generation. So that's kind of my, my two cents on the issue. Yeah, I love your discreet treatment of that. So I appreciate that. I, I, wanna, I want the show to be interesting and ask great questions and get people thinking. And I know sometimes I don't ask people questions that could potentially be controversial because I know that they'll go down that road. And I knew that you would handle that with grace. So I <laughs> appreciate that. Okay, so I have two questions for you as we're wrapping this up. Looking into your personal future, what your goals are, because you had a crisis that kind of pivoted you at the beginning, and now you probably aren't having a crisis, and you're having to figure it out without the pressure of that crisis. But I also, before we go into that, I, I want to wrap up this tax section on the future of cost segregation as this is being stepped down or phased out. Right. So we talked, you know, briefly about bonus depreciation in 2017. The Tax Cuts and Jobs Act introduced this thing called 100% bonus depreciation, which allows you to take once you've done a cost segregation study and allocate and broken out those costs to different segregated those costs to different components, five year, 15 year, et cetera, you have the option to take 100% of those deductions in the first year. So that gave a huge, a huge bonus, right? Mm -hmm. Now we're not creating new deductions. That's not what bonus is, just front loading it uh, okay. the first year. So just kind of to illustrate by a million dollar property over 27 and a half year schedule, regular depreciation, you'd be taking about $30,000 a year of deductions. Okay. With bonus depreciation, if you can take, let's say, 20% of those deductions in the first year, that's $200,000. So it's a huge, huge difference, obviously. Now, this year and in the ensuing years, it's phasing out. So this year, 2023, if you bought a property in 2023, you can only claim 80% bonus depreciation, which means only 80% of those deductions. In the first year, the remaining 20 can still be on the 5 and 15-year schedule, so it's still cost segregatable. The, then it will keep going down by 20%, 60%, 40 20% bonus depreciation in the coming mm -hmm. years in, until there will no longer be bonus depreciation according to the current law, although cost segregation will still be around as has been for about 40 years. So it's cost segregation itself is nothing new. It's just this bonus depreciation was kind of like, I don't know, steroids basically. Uh, yeah, kind of a, a jump, yeah, a huge <laughs> you know, jumpstart to cost segregation. I think that's when it started getting a lot of attention when you could it do a bonus. And so it's probably been a great help for your business because it, it brought more attention to it, even though it wasn't a permanent kind of a thing. Much Many more people know about it and are going to be continuing to use a strategy moving forward through the life of our 
real estate careers. All right. So tell us where Yona is going. Tell us what you are thinking, working on. Like you said, you're not a big goal setter, but what are some adventures maybe that you want to do that you haven't done yet? Or what's really driving you right now in your life to, to keep pushing, but also to enjoy life more? You know, family is really the most important thing. Having kids and obviously I have three, almost four teenagers at this point. So, you know, my, my youngest is eight, which means, you know, they're my oldest is 19. So that kind of range, and they're pretty close together in that range. But so that's the most important thing, kind of spending time with them as they're getting older, kind of figuring out what they're going to do. Just sat down with my oldest daughter last night, just discussing, you know, real estate. She wanted, you know, she wants to get involved in real estate. She's like, where should I start? Like, I want to do what you're doing. I want to like figure out something. And, and so that was great, you know, kind of taking them along in the journey to whatever extent I can. That's really, if I have any goals or anything like that, it's all based on that. How can I spend more time with them? How can I kind of help them to be successful in their own ways? Yeah, that's why we had kids. Honestly, like I wouldn't have had so many kids if I didn't want to spend time with them. I could have made very different choices in life, but I made the decision to have a bunch of kids because I don't know, they're just so interesting. So. I, I agree with that. That really is what drives me as well as becoming a, a better mother, a better support structure, a better mm-hmm. source of information, knowledge and help for them. But mostly they, because I have a bunch of daughters, they want me to just kind of hang out, hang out with them. <laughs> so I need a lot of time to just be able to do that. All right. So I know in your future, I'm going to look into the future. In October, you're going to be at the Bigger Pockets Conference where I will also be and finally meet you in person wow. for the first time. So we're moving to Orlando for a couple of months. And so I'm really excited to go to the conference and meet some people. Can you tell us just briefly, very quickly about what you've got going on there? Yeah, absolutely. So great thing. If you want to have a deep dive, I'm giving a a private talk on cost segregation, one of the breakout rooms, as well as a panel discussion with a few other tax advisors, Amanda Hahn, Natalie Claudi, and a few others about tax tax strategies. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Bigger Pockets is a great uh, platform and I'm excited. Really, I go to conferences just to meet people. You know, it's love to kind of bring to life in real life all the amazing friends that we've made over online, LinkedIn and over the years. So I'm really excited to meet you. I didn't realize you're going to be there. So I'm, I'm really, really excited for that as well. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Definitely look Yona up on LinkedIn. How can people get a hold of you? But I ask every guest also, why should people get a hold of you? What type of person, what would be the ideal outcome networking as a result of this episode? Well, I am what they call a go-giver, right? That's a great book, Bob Berg, if you haven't checked it out. But if you are a go-giver as well, that's the kind of person that I like to surround myself with, people who are kind of positive and out there just trying to trying to give, trying to help other people. Please connect and make sure if you do reach out to me on all the socials, I'm very active on LinkedIn, Twitter now also, uh, Instagram, whatever. Just make do me a favor, write a little note it take you more than, you know, 10 seconds, five, 10 seconds or so just to say, I saw you on Emma's podcast or heard you on, you know, Passive Income Adventures. So I know how you're reaching out and I'd really appreciate that. That is a great answer. It's not about like the person who's going to help you most in business or any of that. You just want to surround yourself with other go-givers because when you do that, stuff just magically happens. So yeah. what a great answer. So thank you so much for sharing that for us. Thank you for everything that you do. You've taught me how to use LinkedIn for my own business. You've taught me the power of saving money on my taxes. You've done some cost seg on some of our buildings. And I feel like of all the people I know in this world that I had to put near the top of the list of who's impacted my business the most, you would be right up there. So appreciate wow. all that you've done. That's awesome. I'm so glad to hear that. 
All right, everybody. Well, be sure to reach out to Yona and to check out his podcast, Wise Advice, where I am on episode number, I can't remember, but I do have that on my website at highrise.group slash podcasts, where you can scroll down, click on my episode, and then binge listen to everything that that Yona's put out. Jonah, what? (laughs) Everything that Yona has put out. Thank you so much for being with us today. Appreciate it. I always love talking to Yona. He has such a soothing quality about him and he's able to educate us on topics most people wouldn't find totally interesting. But like I said at the beginning, if you're in the position where you're looking at writing a huge check for taxes or you're seeing your tax return at the end of the year and seeing how much you paid in taxes, suddenly this topic gets a lot more interesting and he's able to explain it in a way that's very accessible in a way that helps us to see that we have a lot more options than maybe we realize or maybe that our accountant even knows about. So finding the right people, the right team around you. I always go to Yona and ask about the cost saving strategies that he might know that we can talk to our accountant about. And I think that it's important to have a team of people who are interacting with one another so that we're making sure that we get the best of what everybody has to offer us. So if you would like to get more information on investing with us, Rise Capital CO is our equity and debt fund for accredited investors. And if you are either not accredited or you just want to be a little bit more hands-on, check out our joint venture club at riseclubcapital.com. We meet once a week, every Monday night, and we go through real deals that we want to invest in. So whether you want to be a limited partner or a little bit more hands-on joint venture partner, our meeting is incredibly educational. It's like learning a foreign language. You go to a country and you are totally lost maybe even the first couple of months. But if you just keep going, you'll start to pick it up word by word because we're in there. I call it like the war room. We're doing battle in there. We're trying to figure out real deals that we could put our real money in together and use that pool to negotiate for better terms. So if you have been wanting to learn more about commercial real estate, listening to the show is a great place to start, but getting involved in a deal is the next step. Whether it's your first one or you're trying to pivot into something a little bit more diversified than something that you've already done, our club is a great fit for you and we're looking forward to seeing you there. So until next time, Be sure to reach out after the show to Yona, to me. We want to network with you and be in your network. And we're really looking forward to hearing about your next passive income adventure.